So Dan, I'm pretty sure, in fact, we might even be late this year asking this question. Have you had your first mince pie yet? I have. I have. I really enjoyed it. Very nice, actually. I was um, nice. making sure I was observing your your rule. Obviously, no Christmas before Halloween. Great rule. But we're now yep. well into being allowed to do Christmas. So yeah, had some good mince pies. Yeah. Comfortably into Christmas. That's excellent. I actually haven't had any mince pies yet, but I was in a meeting last week that had them. I just didn't manage to, to grab one before I left. So I'm looking forward to my first taste. I'm pretty sure Magic FM is 100% Christmas from maybe this Friday which for is me is another mark of, of it's, it's really Christmas then. Very big milestone in, in the run-up. Do you tend to go turkey on the Christmas menu, Christmas lunch menu? Or no, it? I'm a one once a year turkey gal. So right. I will have turkey at my family Christmas and gotcha. I will not have turkey gotcha. at any other point. <laughs> That's my rule. But anyway, before Christmas, of course, we've got the rest of the World Cup, which started last week. Yep. So How's your World Cup experience so far, Dan? It's been fine. It's been good. I'm, I'm probably one of those people that kind of takes a little bit longer to get into these sort of tournaments normally and, and kind of, I don't know, you sort of had such a long period of getting disappointed by England that you kind of don't want to get your hopes up too much. Plus, yeah, I still haven't quite totally figured out how to think about the, yeah, the tournament in general and some of the bigger picture issues on that, to be honest. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that I can build up some excitement for some of the later stages. We'll see. How, how are you? Do you get into it straight away or you you let it build? I like to think I get into it straight away, but I didn't watch the Monday's England game live. I recorded it and watched it later. I had a bit of a panic when I realised that the game had overrun quite a lot because I wasn't sure my recording was going to last long Uh, enough. That was a bit of a stress. I did the classic really hard thing where I tried to avoid the score, just about avoided the details of it, probably knew the gist of it. Probably people would have talked a bit more if we'd have have not won. Um, And I'm looking forward, because I didn't do this on Monday's match, I'm looking forward to getting on my 2006 England shirt, which is the latest one I have that my parents um, helpfully dug out for me in the last few weeks. So yeah, it's the red one with the gold lettering. And yes, it does. It does thankfully still fit me. So I will, I'll be sporting that for the next match. Vintage. But, it's a vintage yeah. look. It's, it's a classic one. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, absolutely. great. So you got, you got, yeah. you absolutely got, got all the gear. All the gear and a little bit of an idea. But yeah, we'll see how we go on that one. And so we are then doing something kind of interesting next week, aren't we? So um, mm. go on. Yeah, absolutely. So we are, some some listeners might already be aware of this, we are recording an episode with our football analytics team, obviously very relevant to the World Cup. It will be post-group stage review, so probably come out towards the end of next week. We'll be taking a look at what, what's been going on so far. But our insurance uncut fellow colleagues did record with our football analytics team a, a week or so ago. So we'll link to that episode if you want a, a sort of precursor to the whole tournament. That, that was recorded last week. Um, but yeah, we'll look forward to catching up with them with a bit bit of experience under our belts next week. Yeah, no, they'll be, be interesting, won't they? I always enjoy talking to them, talking to, to Bart and Ashley about how you know, they're using models, aren't they, to try and quantify the impact of players on games. And they've got all this data set about all these kind of tackles and moments in games where they put these um, probabilistic models on it and try and gauge the impact of players and then have these little player profiles. I always find the one that always feels a bit harsh. They try and show how a player's performance will drop off with age. And I always feel that that's, that stings a little bit because I'm definitely at that age point where the performance is like absolutely <laughs> dropping off a cliff. But I, I guess it's just a... They're just representing that as sort of a, an empirical fact out of the data, aren't they? Is, uh, there you go. Yeah, p- potentially a fact that didn't need proving, but I guess well, that's, that's what the data shows. So Yeah, well, having, having said that, a lot of the top players of this World Cup are towards the end of their 30s, aren't they? When you look at uh, Ronaldo, Messi, Modric, I think, are all um, are all over 35. So um, a little bit of an interesting one there. Anyway, maybe that's one thing we get into uh, next week with um, when we talk to the football analytics team, among other things. Absolutely. And that will be an out-of-cycle episode. So a Brucey bonus there for, for the listeners to take stock on the World Cup. But for now, should we get on with today's episode? Yep, let's do it. Mm-hmm. 
welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week, we are returning to our theme of talking to experienced decision makers in the investment industry. And this week, delighted to say that we're joined by Chris Martin, Executive Chair at ITS and a professional trustee. Chris, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Good to have a chat with you. Welcome, Chris. So Executive Chair and professional trustee, could you give the listeners a sense of what that means uh, in your day-to-day job? Yeah, I guess in terms of day-to-day job, I'm a professional trustee, square brackets, executive chair. I spend most of my time working with clients, working on trustee boards, leading trustee boards in some cases where I'm fortunate enough to chair, leading subcommittees across a range of different areas. And I guess coming back to Dan's introduction, helping trustee boards and committees make better decisions. We hope that's what we do. And obviously, having been one of the founders of the business, I still have a role in the management of ITS. But yeah, day to day, I'm a jobbing professional trustee. Great. And we'll get into a lot more of that through the episode. Yeah, tons of interesting stuff to cover there, Chris. But before we get into all of that, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Oh, God, there are plenty of things I could confess to, but probably not on air. So one place perhaps you wouldn't expect to find me, and just to prove that pensions isn't quite as dull as it may appear from the outside. So I like to spend most of my summers standing in Wellington boots in muddy fields, listening to live music of a particular genre. So I'm probably the only professional trustee you'll find there. Excellent. In Welly boots sounds UK-based. Is it UK and abroad? Yeah, no, I do abroad, but um, yeah, probably Espadrilles abroad, but definitely wellies in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So does that mean you're going to be going for tickets? It's around this time of year, isn't it, that the Glastonbury tickets go go for sale? Or is that not quite the right genre? Glastonbury is a bit mainstream. but Okay, fair enough. So niche festivals then? Exactly, exactly. Excellent. As long as the music's right, it's fine. Okay, well, we'll look forward to hearing stories from next summer then. Any good ones from this summer, I guess? First summer that we were feeling less sort of attacked by COVID in terms of those sorts of events? Yeah, no, it, was, it was a good summer, actually. And yeah, the whole sort of gigging scenes back. So some really good bands touring at the moment. So I, I managed to pick up a couple of really good ones. If you get a chance to see a band called Panic Shack, they're a Welsh all-female punk band. They are fantastic musically, but hilariously lyrically as well. So test, try them out. Panic Jack, was it? Shack. Shack. Okay, Panic Shack. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely check those out. Thank you. So, Chris, we thought we might start the episode by looking back and, and ITS celebrated your, your 30th anniversary this year. I wondered if you could pick out maybe your particular high points over that time period and, and maybe one key thing that you've learnt. Yeah, it's really quite terrifying when thinking back over 30 years or more uh, things you, you've lived through or survived, depending on which way you look at it. So, I mean, the high points really are sort of with me every day when I come into the office now and I see 40 colleagues who've joined the business over that period of time. I look at the clients that we now deal with compared with the client base we had in 1991. And it just it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't even feel like the same business, Mary, to be honest. It's an absolute pleasure every morning to get up and be part of it. So I wouldn't want to pick out any particular highlights So it's just growing the business, growing the great people in the business and delivering good outcomes to a range of clients. But if I had to name 
a couple of situations, which I guess we I'm personally proud of, but as a business, we're proud of. I think we led the market in some of the most innovative risk transfer solutions. So we still do, but a decade or more ago when when it was all a little bit more scary and, and people weren't so confident in different shape transactions. So I think getting certain schemes to a safer home has been a, a really high point for me. I guess some of the work we've done in stressed and distressed situations, so things like MG Rover, Corellian, BHS, all had a high profile sometimes for the wrong reason. But again, getting those members to the point of certainty around actually you're, you're going to carry on getting your pensions paid, the PPF's there to support you. And it really does make a difference. And it sounds a bit trite, but every now and again, we get a letter from somebody who says, it's been a bad situation, but just because of the way you've dealt with it, I just feel a bit more confident about my life. And that, it's those, actually, it's those things that really make the difference. And if you get one a year, you know you're doing the right thing. Yeah. I actually had a conversation last night where it's very easy in kind of all of our roles to think about, you know, this is a DB pension scheme. And it's actually relatively rare in some meetings that you talk specifically about the members. And of course, that's why everyone is here. And that's that's what it's all about, isn't it? So so getting those letters must really bring that home. It's a brilliant point. We sit around and talk about the liabilities, but actually we're talking about the members and the beneficiaries, aren't we? We ought to change our language from time to time. Yeah, that 30-year period of time, that's really quite a thing, isn't it? And, it, and I think the right point you made, it, it must have been five or six different businesses over that period of time, right? I mean, I, I've worked in businesses that have grown fast, and it, it really is like multiple different businesses over the years, from startup to something big to all, everything in between. Yeah, if you think of it, as I was um, in sort of preparation for our chat, I was thinking back to what typical investment strategies would have looked like when we started started the business i think the, the first scheme we ever pointed to had less than a million pounds of assets and was pretty much yeah so 100 percent invested in a mixed managed fund or sort of 60 40 mixed managed fund which was just that actually that was relatively innovative at the time but it was the go-to choice and you managed it for absolute return as opposed to with any sort of relationship with the liabilities you were trying to meet and it's, sorry, I've been in the industry longer than that. And going back beyond that, it was pretty much the preserve of insurance companies with deposit admin contracts, with profit contracts. It's interesting how we're circling back, aren't we, to insurers inheriting the earth again. It's been a really interesting cycle through that, Dan, in terms of the changes we've seen over that period and how we've had to evolve as a trustee company in terms of the sort of skill sets that we need to have, the roles we need to take. And it's... Yeah, I think it's good enough for us as a professional trustee just to turn up and sit on the board. We really have got to help drive decisions and to add, add value. Yeah, I mean, the change over that period of time is just a whole a whole conversation itself, isn't it? It's been huge. But we wanted to maybe just try and pick up on one particular aspect of the work you've done. You alluded to it a second ago, Chris, which is some of the work you've done with pension schemes in difficult situations, let's call it in-stress situations. I think one of the first times I ever saw you speak, by the way, was you were on a panel and this might have been 10 years ago or something, or know, six years ago, you were on a panel talking about a particular stress situation. I actually forget which one it was. I think it might be one of the ones you just cited, but it didn't really matter. You, you were on a panel, you'd worked through this situation as a trustee and were talking to a large group of people in terms of some of the some of the takeaways. But can you give us a bit of a feel of what types of stress situations you've encountered and the impact that's had on how you operate? 
Yeah, no, of course. Stress is an interesting term because it covers such a huge range of different situations. So without diving too deeply in terms of what we've all been through, or sorry, a lot of schemes have been through over the last month or so, I guess that's been some schemes have suffered stress, despite what you've seen in the headlines in the press. It perhaps hasn't been multiple scheme failures, but it has stressed certain schemes. It's going to stress their funding frameworks and investment strategies for a while to come. But in terms of stress that actually then translates itself into member outcomes, I think that's a very different space. And sort of situations we've been working on for the last 15 to 20 years, where we have, I guess, limited scope to be able to deliver the full benefit outcome members were expecting. But our role is to try to take what's available and to deliver a better outcome than simply defaulting to failure. So I haven't explained that very well, but there are marginal benefits we can add by the way in which we choose to engage with the sponsor, which we choose to engage with the advisors around delivery of strategy. And particularly in a situation where perhaps you're looking to provide members with something be between a PPF outcome and the full benefits they were expecting, your decision-making can add percentage points to the outcomes that members receive for the rest of their lives. And it's, it's a really interesting way. We all like to measure on a backward-looking basis the extent to which our decision-making has been successful. But there you can actually measure it in percentages of, of expected pension. And so I guess some of those some of those situations where you have to drive investment decision-making in against a wider... So most of the time, we have the relative luxury of thinking about funding and investment and covenant against a reasonably stable platform of decision-making. But when your covenant is something that's disappearing within weeks, all of your other decision-making becomes distressed and more focused. But getting it right immediately translates into outcome. So it's a... It's a really, it's a challenging but ultimately rewarding position to put yourself in because you, you can do better for people, which is, I guess, why we're all here. Yeah. And so I suppose through what you've described there, Chris, in some cases, there's stress in, in a number of different angles, I suppose. But in some cases, it's trying to make decisions quite quickly. In most cases, I guess, that you've described, it's there is no easy right answer here. So, you know, of the various options available to us, as you say, what can we do to just incrementally improve the position for members, but we're not getting to the gold star, gold standard that, you know, from a blank sheet of paper is what we're trying to get to. That's exactly right. And sometimes, so there is no easy answer. And sometimes it's almost case of picking the less wrong answer against a backdrop that is changing almost on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. And we've all been brought up to find the right answer and get the right solution and that sort of thing. But I suppose you've got the rewarding nature of the connection to members. But it must be quite difficult making those decisions when, you know, you make a decision and you you feel like you've made a good and right decision and there's a, the right answer. That probably feels quite warm and fuzzy. I'm really interested in how the process goes when you're making decisions that I guess you still get that warm, fuzzy feeling if you've improved member benefits. But if you're not kind of getting that gold standard are there any techniques that you've developed over the years or you found work particularly well when you're in those situations where there isn't an easy answer? So I think the key reference point for me is always around understanding the downside impact for members. So, for example, if we're in a distress situation where 
we've got a choice about how long we leave risk on in the investment strategy. So, yeah, I can see some upside there by doing so. But actually, if will the members thank you if you deliver 2% off their benefits in an attempt to add 1% on? Well, they probably wouldn't. And therefore, I guess I would always be focused on what that downside risk is in terms of thinking about what my strategy will be. So it's, it's around incrementally building in those situations rather than putting it all on red. Yeah. And as an extension of that, then, is it important to have some kind of measurement framework in place where you can you can sort of put those numbers on it just a little bit? Because that's conceptually, yes, but you, I suppose you need to try and actually do it, don't you? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, particular transaction we were involved in a few years ago now where we were, it was a really fascinating one where we were back to backing a restructuring of the corporate sponsor, the pension scheme, with a buy-in to buy-out policy. So actually having to line all three elements up at once and creating that framework for understanding what your investment decisions were doing in relation to your purchasing power on the risk transfer. So you had you couldn't see one decision in isolation from the other. So you're, from an investment strategy perspective, it might have been appropriate to do A, but actually that was going to create risk, immediate risk in B. So actually having that framework in place. And in non-distress situations, it's just as important to have the framework in place to understand what it is you're trying to achieve and, and to measure whether you're being successful or not. So we talked about things we've seen over the last 30 years or so, but the advance in the way in which we now think about setting strategy for the long term and the way in which we measure that strategy and the way in which we take advantage of opportunities in delivering that strategy. And the, so the advance in technology has just been startling over the period. The days where you go to a quarterly trustee meeting and have a discussion about whether you're going to de-risk and then decide the following quarter that you might do it, hopefully along behind us. But yes, the tools that are available now to give you the fulfillment of the strategy are, come on, just out of, yeah, I mean, out of all recognition over the last few years. Yeah, it's about being able to look at that kind of knock-on impacts, I think, because is, is that what you're saying? It's like being able to say, well, you're suggesting this strategy, so the knock-on impacts of it are X, Y, and Z. And yeah, the tools are definitely there now to do that in real time. But I guess isn't part of it also being willing to do that, having the mindset and having the group dynamic that accepts you can actually do that live and not you know, go away and come back with a big advisory piece in three months. Totally. And part of that dynamic is working with all stakeholders as well, Dan. 15, 20 years ago, we would be sitting in different camps and having different discussions and occasionally meet. And if you were really lucky, you might even meet somewhere in the middle of deciding what to do. But actually, I'm a huge believer in the joint working group, joint planning group approach, where you get all the key stakeholders in the room at the same time. And actually, everybody everybody leaves their self-interest and their egos at the door. Uh, having all the advisors in the room at the same time just drives better decision-making, drives better planning, better decision-making, makes it far easier in real time. I'm just, I guess, playing that out. So 30 years ago, much more common for stakeholders to sit in their own camps and, and not work collaboratively in quite the way that you now see. Do you have a sense of why things have changed and why there is so much more collaboration? Do you think it's some people practicing a good practice and that ends with a very good result and that's then known in the market and more people do it or do you think it has been sort of nudged by regulation on different sides or, or something else 
so it's a huge question in terms of all the various things that have changed. So I guess if you go back 30 years, the first three, four schemes ITS have dealt with were we were appointed to deal with the distribution of surplus. So I don't think we ever spent any time looking at the strength of an employer's covenant because the funding was always there. So I think that one of the big drivers to change is has been the last 15, 20 years of understanding. So we now think of it as IRM, but actually we just didn't think about it at all before, but actually understanding the various legs to what drives good outcomes for members and clearly covenants is one of those. As soon as you start thinking about covenant, you need to be engaging with the key stakeholder who is the sponsor. So I think some of it we, should, we didn't need to 30 years ago because it was almost like a magic money tree. So the, the culture of the equity and the fact that yeah, schemes were so well funded, there was never any doubt. It was more around contribution holidays and surplus distribution than it was about actually how do we work with the sponsor to deliver the benefits that have been promised. Once you have to start working that environment, you get in the same room. And you're right, there have been some examples of really good behaviours. And of course, on the flip side, and things we've chatted about earlier, you can witness what happens when those behaviours aren't quite right. So they always end up in that really distressed situation, but there's a fair chance it's not going to create good outcomes. Yeah. You've alluded a couple of times to the sort of group dynamics and the decision making, which is something we've talked about a lot. Lo- would love to get some of your thoughts on it. And you, you said something really interesting, which was get everyone to leave their ego at the door. And I mean, that sounds great, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, let's just tell everyone, yeah, please just leave your ego at the door, please, when you come in. But that, I mean, I kind of feel like it's probably easier said than done. So how do you think you actually make that happen in practice? So I think, I think one of the ways in which you make that happen in practice is to have strong leadership within the key stakeholders, within the joint working group. I think it's understood that if you're going to come in and position or try to demonstrate to your clients in that joint working group that you're scoring points for the sake of it, that you don't then get invited back in again. You've actually just done your client a bit of a disservice rather than that than a favour. So I think it's the strong leadership of that group. I guess you talked earlier, we talked earlier about value of effective decision making. I think one of the things that I've seen as a big change over the last few years is the, the value that a professional trustee can bring as key stakeholder in key stakeholder management as well. So you can be the person in the room that says, actually, this isn't what we're all here for and actually can do it without sort of fear or favor. So I think somebody who's good at generating collaborative thinking, but actually calling out the wrong behaviors. I think a good professional trustee with the strength of character to do that can add a huge amount of value. Mm. When I'm picturing that, I'm picturing that to be the sort of professional trustee in a chair of trustee type role but I suppose it's not it doesn't have to be the person who's got the chair position necessarily it's just being in that room no no I think it's being in the room and sometimes actually not chairing is easier to call out bad behaviors because you have more time to focus on it you have more time to gently do it as opposed to having to just cut short debate but I think it is it does need that that strong character but also it needs the if you've got two key stakeholders going into if you've got a sponsor or a trustee going into a joint working group however they're represented the fact that the sponsor and the trustee are able to work together 
and have a clear understanding of what they want to get out of it. That is so important for driving the behaviours of everybody else in the room. And those bit, it's really important that those behaviours don't then start to start to morph once you step outside the room again because you end up destroying value, you create delays, you create tension. One of the things we've seen over the last few weeks as well with some of the challenges we've been facing is the way those relationships, sponsor trustee relationships have been built in, in steadier times have really come through and stood the test in slightly more stretching times. So it's been those relationships where we're closest to our sponsors, where we've been able to think about working together in different ways to restructure strategy, to think in some cases about sponsor loans. It really does demonstrate that you're never quite sure when you're going to need to rely on that relationship, but the strength of having it there is a great backstop. Yeah, I think that's very well said. You've mentioned joint working group a couple of times and and the fact that that means you've got different stakeholders sitting in that room. Again, what I'm picturing is a smaller group of people. It's not the full trustee board plus a sponsor. Do you have a view on advisors being there versus not being there, or is that just dependent on the individuals? Do you think you should have a subgroup of the trustee rather than everyone? Just maybe talk us through that. If it's a joint working group, then I'm a big believer in the the key participants from the stakeholders having their own dynamic and their own relationship. So if it's a sponsor trustee, then the senior representatives from the trustee and the sponsor have to know what they're trying to get out of it. And that has to be where the point of focus collaboration sits. But equally, I would then want all of their respective advisors and key decision makers in the room as well. I think it sounds like I'm suggesting you're corralling the decision making into the room, but it is important that it sits in there and that the dynamic of the JWG is one that it can kick around ideas in a sort of safe space where nobody feels that they're being cornered or constrained, but equally what the JWG then takes back to its external stakeholders is something that's been well tested and it's not just floating some ideas. You've got to be confident that when you leave that room, they're implementable and that your respective boards have given you the authority to get it to that position because otherwise it's just a a place for warm conversations and that's really not going to help anybody in, in driving good decisions. So... Very keen on having the advisors in the room. The first time I did it was 12, 13 years ago on a particularly complicated restructuring. And it was really interesting to see the faces around to see the faces around the table. So they'd uh, never actually been put in that position where they had to share their thoughts in front of, of other advisors. One of the ways we see it play out really, really well now as well. So you'll be aware of the increasing number of PCST run schemes, so professional corporate sole trustee schemes. It's a big part of the market now. I think there's a there's a bit of a different dynamic in decision making there because you've got a single trustee generally facing off with a single point of contact with the sponsor. But one of the ways that the PCST model can work, and so if, if, if that particular model sort of just drops into the, the quarterly meeting cycle, trustee model is not actually adding any value by having a, a sole trustee. So the way we like to see it work is to really empower all of the advisory team to work together around us, but not necessarily through us. So we don't we don't be a barrier to making things happen. We want the advisors to talk together around developing strategy and then bring the thinking back to us. So I think that's a, it's another evolution of that JWG and that actually getting people into the same room to think. 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It sounds like what you're talking about is a sort of there's a bit of an evolution in in thinking in terms of the way things work. I'm just taking some notes here. You're talking a lot about this idea of a working group, and I was making a few notes as you were saying that. I think I think what you're saying is to recap a few things. You're talking about being very mission driven, so getting everyone really clear on what you're doing, common framework for operating within, getting people sort of comfortable thinking out loud a little bit, and just kind of going with it live in the room, and then a focus on pragmatic solutions coming out of it that are actually going to work in the real world after the meeting so to speak but the bit i thought was really interesting you're saying yeah you know get all the advisors there and i suppose there's a tension isn't there with the size of these groups sometimes and it seems like what you're talking about here could get to quite a significant size of people in the room so how would you sort of go about just handling and managing that so you actually do get all these great effects coming out of it it's a great question, and just occasionally you do need to have a grand set-piece meeting, although I'm generally not a fan of 15 people in the room, not for driving good discussion and effective decision-making. So I guess it's making sure that your joint working group is nimble and actually when it's thinking about what's on its agenda with a small A for any particular meeting, you're getting the right people in the room. You don't just drag everybody along for the sake of being there and then it's it's making sure that the feedback and outputs from that session are shared openly with everybody so you don't get to the next session people say i didn't have a chance to think about that in advance it's thinking about running a scheme in a dynamic way that we perhaps didn't do 30 years ago it's all about hindsight it's sounds pretty obvious but it's it's running it day to day as opposed to running it set piece to set piece. So the agenda is not a, a standing agenda. It's what are we looking to get out of? So it's the outputs you're looking for for the meeting that drive what the discussion is. They drive who attends those meetings. It's absolutely around picking the right people in the room to get those outputs. And the other bit, sorry, when you were, you're listing the things we were talking about in terms of what makes JWG successful, and we, we sort of touched on it a bit earlier about just setting expectations around behaviours as well. You won't deliver any of those unless everybody in the room is is behaving in the same way. And as soon as you get a majority behaving in that way, it just becomes so easier for everybody else. Yeah, it swings quickly when once people see other people, I suppose, maybe in a positive way. And then just one real quick point. It's really interesting what you're talking about, this sort of nimble, dynamic, day-to-day dare I call it agile sort of way of working as opposed to the kind of more traditional set piecing. Is that something that you've kind of, you know, you sort of sat down and thought to yourself many years ago, things are working in the wrong way. We need to move more that way. Or was it more you sort of that just figured it out as you went along that seemed to work well. So you've tried to do that more rather than less. I'd love to be able to claim down that I yeah, sat down and thought that through and decided the others. Come on, take the credit for it. (laughs) (laughs) Probably just the function of getting it wrong for several years and then gradually getting it right, so it, which I think is generally why most of us learn. Chris, just sticking on decision-making for a little bit longer, in a lot of the roles that you take, you are in that chair position. I wondered if you had thoughts on the role of the chair. I suppose we're not really talking sole trustee now, we're talking more within a bigger group, but how that facilitates decision-making and, and any kind of good and maybe less good examples that you've seen across your experience. Great question, and I think the really important one for uh, so there. Are, I work with some really great chairs where, as professional trustee, I sit on the board and and operate slightly differently to how I'd operate if I was chairing the board. I guess the 
the slight risk for a professional trustee where you're also the chair is you completely take over the thinking for the meeting. So you, you almost need Mary to go back to the whole basics of board composition to make sure that you're, you're getting the best out of the board. So you need a board that's going to feel confident in having the discussion, in challenging each other, but also just not a board that's not willing to just sit back and say, you tell us what you think because you've done this before. That's actually getting the right people on the board. But equally, the, the professional trustee, if they're chairing, has to make sure they can leave their ego outside the room as well. So the people you're, particularly if you're thinking about it from an IRM perspective, the people in the room probably have a much better understanding of the dynamic of the business than you do. They have an understanding of what the membership is thinking and feeling. So it's just making sure you sort of humble enough to understand that because you've done it several times before, their contribution is probably far more valuable than yours is. And just sometimes saying less is the better way of making of making sure that other people fill the fill the space for you. It's not always an easy thing to do because we all like to hear the sound of our own voices, me in particular. And the other bit that I'm a great fan of in terms of how that whole board dynamic works is the, the stuff that happens outside of the structure of the meeting itself where people tend to come alive and, and be most direct in their views. So just making sure there's plenty of time for that as well which we all miss so much going from Zoom call to Zoom call. There really was something qualitatively missing in just not having a natter in the corridor about what was worrying somebody or what the, what they were thinking about the meeting. Yeah, I think there's the natter and there was the body language as well, which I definitely struggled with when you're on a, a Zoom call and you can see a facial expression, but you can't see if someone's leaning in, you know, to really listen to what you're saying or is a bit disinterested. Sometimes you could tell if they were doing other work on the side. Sometimes you could see if they really didn't like what you were saying, but it's so much more difficult to say, do I have the whole room with me with what I'm saying or or do I need to backtrack on something? Absolutely. And you could, yeah, and sort of judging whether somebody was gradually ticking because they didn't like what was being discussed People have a habit of turn the camera off and it just, yeah, you lose so much of that connection. So it's great to be back in person. Definitely, yeah. You made a point just a second ago about people who like the sound of their own voice. I mean, no idea what you're talking about there at all. <laughs> but I will just say for anyone who does have that issue, hosting your own podcast is a fantastic solution to that because you can <laughs> listen to your own voice endlessly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know anything repeat. about that, obviously. Yeah, one other thing I just wanted to get your take on quickly, Chris, working with experts. So obviously you work with a lot of advisors and the schemes you're on, you know, investment consultants. Here they can be quite good, actuaries, but lawyers, corporate advisors, insolvency, all manner of experts. How do you avoid in a situation where you're simply sort of outsourcing all your thinking to them. I mean, they've got the expertise, but I guess there is a balance there. You're not just simply letting them roll up and say, right, now you guys take over and, and just sort this whole thing out, right? How do, how do you sort of weigh that up? Yeah, so I tend to think of our advisors as helping join the dots. So the dots are what we want to achieve strategically, and that has to belong to the decision makers and the key stakeholders. So I in the context of delivering DB success, that's between the sponsor and the trustee board. So we've got to be aligned on strategy. The advisors come along and help us deliver it and can input to the shaping of it, but we've got to own it. And I think that's, again, that's where, so I would say this, but no, but I think that's where a sort of mature professional trustee approach 
can help just making sure that framework never gets completely given over to the advisors to deliver. So whilst I want people in the room sharing their ideas, coming up with the best thoughts, I'm not just going to yeah, sort of abdicate the leadership to them. And there's a risk. Yeah, once things go into a, a black box and you don't know what's gone in to give you the answer, I get quite nervous about that. So I do want to be able to see all the components still down as well. And I want to be able to test what the individual elements are. But I want to test them, not to dictate to them what the answer should be. So I suppose taking that one step further, Chris, and almost turning the spotlight a little bit in the other direction, you've clearly worked with lots of consultants in your time as a professional trustee, investment managers as well. Are there any things that you think they do particularly well at the moment, have started to do much better than when you were first involved in this in this area? And I suppose, conversely, what can we all do better? It's just a different industry, doesn't it? I don't recognise it from 30 years ago. I can't, yeah. Just trying to actually try and remember the first investment consultants I dealt with 30 years ago, but they, again, the whole whole approach was so different, Mary, that you really can't compare it. It just feels like a, a completely different place. And actually, even thinking back 10 or 15 years ago, the way in which we take investment and funding advice, the way in which is delivered now in real time has been just a total game changer from where we were before. The fact you can you can model in real time, you can help that to drive good decisions, whether it's in terms of setting strategy or executing strategy. Just even in the last five or six years feels totally different place. And the way the industry has been able to react to some of the more difficult challenges we've been going through, I guess it it has illustrated to us that we are not perfect and we still have to make sure that we don't lose sight of things like tail risks that we might previously thought of as being unimaginable. I think the way that funding investment strategy covenant risk is now joined up, thought about, considered as one as part of long-term strategy and the way that long-term journey is now mapped out, it feels completely different to the the sort of here's a dart ball, we're going to throw some arrows at it and we might just hit the bullseye. You can break the journey down into small steps and if you happen to misstep, you get a chance to, to sort it out. But before it was it was a completely different feeling in terms of where you were going and how you're going to get there. There is still a bit of a legacy, I have to say, and one of the frustrations I have is we do still seem to be a bit stuck on looking backwards in trustee meetings. One of my great frustrations is, do I really want an investment report that's three months out of date, and particularly when when we're in uh, fast-moving markets, so we still do seem to get a little bit stuck on backward-looking. I know there are compliance reasons why we have to do it, but again, I think that's just a, that's the next evolution that we deal more in real time. Lots of consultants listening to this probably. So in terms of takeaways, you're saying don't spend so much time looking backwards, keep it real-time, love the real-time stuff. What else would be your sort of top three kind of asks for consultants to do more of? Again, I'm very keen that consultants bring all their ideas to us rather than apply a filter of what they think will work for us or what you hear sometimes, and particularly as chair, and you can do it through the chair, it works It works well, but yeah, we've thought about X, Y, and we've decided not to add that because we don't think you'll be interested in it. Well, actually, let me or the board decide whether we're interested in it, so I think being careful you don't over filter 
And I guess the other, on the flip side, just bringing along ideas because they're flavour of the month because they've worked somewhere else is just feels a bit like lazy consulting. So I guess I combine the two together, Dan, I'd share all your thinking and let the trustee board filter out what's good for it and what isn't. Yeah. And I suppose just do so in a in a mindful way. So it's not that you're throwing the kitchen sink, but you are just giving an insight into your thought process. Exactly. Yeah, I'd rather be part of this part of the discussion for understanding and rejecting something and a board that's structured effectively with the right subcommittees or working groups should be able to do that. That should be part of what a subcommittee does. It does some of that filtering before it develops thoughts to take back to the board. Otherwise, you're applying a filter we can't see. Chris, as we start to come towards the end of our episode, really keen to know what the one thing is that you'd like listeners to take away from today's episode. Stakeholders working together with an agreed strategy with the advisors working together to help execute it. Chris, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Probably that there's no single right way of doing it. And there's certainly no single right way of doing it, which is an easy solution across all the different situations that we find ourselves in. So, yeah, again, it comes back to making sure that your advice fits the strategy that's trying to be delivered by the trustee board and sponsor that you're talking to at the time. But I guess also speaks to that point you you literally just made about not over-filtering ideas because no one has a perfect answer. So actually exploring that thought process and understanding that there are other options out there is still quite valuable. Absolutely, yeah. And helping us to think about how the pieces can be put together by bringing us the pieces and we can help choose them. And Chris, finally from us, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? You've already given us a band recommendation. (laughs) I wondered if there were any sort of books, TV shows, podcasts, that sort of thing. Yeah, I can recommend many bands to you. A book I'm reading at the moment is for anyone who is as much of a cricket geek as I am, and our industry tends to attract it, a fantastic biography of probably the greatest bowler that England ever had. So if you, anyone who wants to, wants him to dive into the world of, of early 19th century cricket, then I can recommend the biography of, Sid, biography of Sidney Barnes. So it's a fascinating read. Okay, excellent. Early 19th century cricket, did you say? Yeah, yeah. Goodness me. Well, that is a different game. So 90, early 1900s cricketer. So somebody with a bowl, career bowling average of 16 is quite remarkable. And that was back in the days, wait, so that was, they didn't cover the pitches, right? So you'd get sticky wickets and stuff. So you, but yeah, bowling average was slightly wickets. better. Than- uh, and actually, if you're playing outside the UK, you're probably playing on matting as well. Right. Yeah. I'll lend it to you, Dan. So you're interested already. that's great that's an excellent recommendation thank you chris chris it's been great hearing from you today so much golden stuff in there on decision making thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today great really enjoyed it thank you thanks chris Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.